As I mentioned last week, today is the 60th anniversary of the I Have a Dream speech. I I talked a little about that speech last week. Um, And so I thought it would be an appropriate occasion this week to give a Dharma talk that I've wanted to give for a while, uh, anti-racist work as a yoga. And and I'll say, first of all, I, I wrestled with exactly what to call it anti-racist work, equity work, inclusion work, um, I think these principles are, are the same whether we're fighting racism, sexism, homophobia, anti-trans, you know, and so I, I think ultimately inclusion is perhaps the best word. Um, I don't know, there's so, many, there's so much vocabulary around this, I wasn't sure what word to use, um, but that, that's the basic idea. And what does it mean to call something a yoga? This, uh, this Sanskrit word, which has been co-opted into English. Um, the word yoga means discipline. And in fact, in the great Indo-European soup of languages, it's etymologically created, connected to the English word yoke, as when you yoke two oxen together. So this constraint that you put on these animals so they do useful work. The idea, similarly, a yoga is a kind of restraint that you put on yourself for your own betterment. Um, And so a yoga would be a particular spiritual discipline. Um, In some ways, the most prototypical would be a daily meditation practice. Um, But other things that might be considered yogas are, say, a a very traditional daily martial arts practice or a qigong practice, um, a daily practice of what Americans call yoga, an asanas practice, or a or pranayama practice. Um, And I'll say also there are what I would call secular disciplines, and that would be, you know, someone with a rigorous exercise routine, or what the, the training that an athlete has to do every day, or practicing a musical instrument every day, or, or practicing a foreign language every day, something like this. And the the, the yogas have some things, as we'll see, they, they have some superficial resemblance to the secular disciplines, but the yogas have, have go much deeper. So what does it mean for a practice to be a yoga? Well, the first feature is simply commitment. It's done daily. And Commitment is a big word. We, it, it often gets very watered down when we're talking about self-commitments, you know. Commitment doesn't mean I'll do it some days. doesn't mean I'll try to do it every day. We'll see. doesn't mean I'll do it every day unless something out of the usual arises, you know. I, I often say if you, you really want to understand how commitment lands, think of it in terms of how would it land in a romantic relationship, you know? Honey, I'm going to be faithful to you unless something out of the ordinary arises. That's not commitment, you know? 
I, I think it's uh, I think it's very useful a very useful way to look at the excuses we make for ourselves and see you know if I was giving this excuse to somebody else in an emotionally significant situation would it hold water at all would I be ashamed to say this excuse to somebody else the excuse I'm giving myself you know anyway so commitment is 100% and that in itself is hard in our day and age. The next feature of a yoga is that it involves working with attention. It involves refining the attention, often through a one-pointed focus. Um, and among other things, that, that involves an inner silencing, a silencing of the mental chatter. Um, And so it's very much a disciplining of the mind space, a kind of clearing and quieting of the mind space that, that among other things, puts us more in touch with the body and the body's wisdom. A third feature of yoga, of a yoga, is that it would involve leaning into discomfort. You know, when, once we quiet ourselves, then all our issues arise, then all our sharp edges come up, you know, this sort of thing. And so it's about leaning into and just sitting with be or being with whatever is arising within, regardless of how uncomfortable it is, just facing whatever is uncomfortable. And as we do that over time, as we do that as a consistent daily practice, our capacity expands. I've, I've talked about capacity a couple months ago in a Dharma talk. So as we're facing facing uncomfortable things, um, the next feature is that we we wind up facing and seeing through the illusions that underlie ego itself, the illusions that that underlie our identity. Um, I, w- I would say in this day and age, we, we Americans probably have scads of illusions that we have about who we are, about how we think we're a good person, how we, how we you know, scads of illusion that make us feel safe, you know, all this. Um, you know, of course, some of the classical teachings such as Buddhism, to say that the self, you know, the, the, the very nature of separativity itself is an illusion to see through. And the final feature of a yoga is that it's really designed to actualize our deeper possibilities. Now, in, in the extreme case in Buddhism, they talk about enlightenment or, or moksha, release in Hinduism. Um, but say in the martial art traditions, there, there may be something akin to enlightenment or a Kensho moment, something like this, or it may just be a kind of, um, sort of a, a, a much deeper stepping into wholeness, a kind of acknowledgement of mastery. Um, if any of you saw that movie years ago, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and think of the kind of, you know, 
mastery and, and deep centeredness of the main characters. You know, that that's the kind of mastery that would come with years of practice in a martial tradition. And so that's the basic picture of what constitutes a yoga. And and I'll say kind of parenthetically, it, it always kind of cracks me up when I hear people say I don't think of Buddhism as a religion. I think of it as a philosophy. And that cracks me up because the, almost inevitably the person saying that does not have a sustained meditation practice. You know, And it's true, Buddhism presents all kinds of interesting ideas and perspective, and it can be fun to play with those ideas in your head. But as any committed Buddhist would tell you, thinking about Buddhism is not Buddhism. You know, Buddhism really begins with embracing the yoga of a daily meditation practice. And then over time, we deepen into those ideas and perspectives. We start living them out rather than just entertaining them as thoughts. You know, that, that is what truly constitutes Buddhism as a religion or a spiritual system, the living out of it, you know, in a committed yoga. And so, in this talk, the kind of radical idea I'm suggesting is that anti-racist work, or whatever we want to call it, inclusion work, you know, equity work, properly understood constitutes a yoga. And here I'm really, I'm following Race Mamenikin very closely. Race Mamenikin is a is a well-respected author on this topic. Um, He calls himself a somatic abolitionist. He's been a body worker for years. And his contention is that racism, how does racism play out in the world? It plays out so much in the body. Like even, even the person who doesn't have a single racist biased thought in their head, you know, when I meet a person of color, do I tighten up in a certain way? Do I smile less? Do, do I register that person in any way as a threat and therefore send out pheromones? You know, like in other words, it's playing out at a hormonal level, at a pheromonic level, all these levels that the mind is not aware of. Um, and so a lot of what he talks about in, in anti-racist work is, is it starts with developing a deep bodily awareness. And so first of all, anti-racist work has to be a daily work. Um, and I think it's a challenging question, especially for white people. Do you think about race every day? Do you face the problem of race every day? You know, if you're black in America, you have no choice. You have to face it every day, you know? And it, it consists in practices. Um, and again, I'll, I will refer you to Race Momenikin's book. He talks about tons of, he calls them the reps. We do these. He, want, he calls them reps because we're supposed to repeat them every day. 
Um, and just to give you a taste of what might constitute these practices, I'll talk about one of his ideas that really impressed me. He calls it the six intelligences of the body. Um, and this, this list intrigued me. None, none of them were completely unfamiliar to me, but I thought it was really powerful to put them together and focus on them as a group. So the six intelligences of the body. The first is simply sensations. You know, hot and cold, pressure, tight and loose, you know. And so say in an emotionally significant situation, are you just aware of your body? where you're tightening up, where you're loosening up, where you feel heavy, where you feel light, you know. So that's, that's intelligence number one. Intelligence number two, the affects or the emotions. Now there are some people who, that there's a big struggle, they, they feel few, if any, emotions. Um, there's a larger number of people who are very comfortable feeling positive, cheerful emotions, but struggle to feel, you know, grief or anxiety or fear or these sorts of emotions. I'd say there are a lot of people who who are comfortable with what I'd call the headline emotions, like the big, the big powerful emotions. Um, but it takes a certain amount of discipline to be aware of both the powerful headline emotions and the evanescent emotions. You know, say I'm meeting meeting up with a friend that I've an old friend I haven't seen for a while, and so the headline emotions might be joy and happiness and gratitude and enjoyment. You know, I'm seeing this friend, but suppose there's a moment talking to him that I just feel a passing feeling of sadness or grief. You know, that's a clue. What's that about? You know, often that evanescent emotion is a clue to a whole other layer happening beneath the surface, you know? And can we, can we be aware of the headline emotion, but, but pick up that, the little flash of the evanescent emotion that, that might pass, you know, be here and gone, that sort of thing. So that's all bodily awareness number two. Body, bodily awareness number three is behavior. So again, in a, in a stressful or an emotionally confronting situation, are we fidgeting? Are we twitching? Is there, you know, is there, you know, tapping the fingers or tapping the foot or something, you know, like, are there, is there nervous energy coming out of us in a certain way? Um, and part of behavior is also, what is our urge to behave? Even if, even if given the situation we can't act out, am I feeling the urge to run out of the room? Am I feeling the urge to, to stretch or to turn away or, you know, like, so it's both behavior awareness is both the, the acting out behaviors as well as the, the, the impulse that's being socially restrained. So that's bodily awareness number three. Bodily awareness number four, or bodily intelligence number four, is meaning. What feels meaningful in this situation? You know, sometimes it can be what the person is saying feels very meaningful. Sometimes what they're not saying feels more meaningful than what they're saying. Sometimes in a group situation, the fact that one person is very silent 
feels meaningful, you know? And so really being sensitive to what feels meaningful here, you know? And it might be the obvious thing or it might be a not so obvious thing, you know? So tracking meaning, that, that's the fourth kind of intelligence. The fifth kind of intelligence, images. You know, as we're in an emotionally confronting or challenging situation, what images are coming up? You know, and these images might be memories of previous times in our life. It might be, you know, characters in, you know, moments in films or novels or songs, you know, some kind of, you know, fictional image coming to mind. Um, I often think it, this is one of the many values of being familiar with the tarot, just to to be very familiar with the images of the tarot, and it, it's almost gives your your unconscious kind of a an image bank from which to draw you know archetypal images of that sort um as as i'm having this emotionally significant conversation with this other person or in this emotionally challenging situation what images are coming up and what information does that give me you know and the final is vibes vibration you know, and this is this is ultimately energy healing, you know, kind of knowledge. But what you know starts out with what is my gut sense here? What is what's the vibe I'm getting about this? Like the person maybe saying that they're happy. What's the vibe I'm getting underneath? You know, and 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 trusting that vibe, and 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 uh, you know, and and fo- following that thread of information, not letting that slip away. So race Mamenikin has a has an anagram for these six um, vimbas. So V I M B A S vibrations, images, meaning, behavior, affects, and sensations. My only complaint about this this uh, this anagram is that it puts the hard stuff first. So you'll notice I started at the end and worked backwards. Um, but this would be this would be a practice, and in race Mamenikin's view, this is this is an essential practice for anti-racist work. You know, in every emotional situation, trying to cycle through all six. What am I sensing? What am I feeling? What what feels meaningful? How am I being feeling impulses to behave? What what images are arising? What vibes am I getting? Just cycling through all six awarenesses so that they become they all become second nature. So that I'm, so I'm able, you know, with enough practice, I'm able to walk into any situation and immediately be aware of all six and can track all six, you know. So that is that's the example of one very concrete practice. So anti-racist work certainly involves daily practice. Um, It certainly involves one-pointed focus and, and in particular, clearing the mental chatter. Because again, racism, you know, for most people in 2023, racism is not a consciously held belief. I mean, there are a few people out there, but for most of us, we're not having racist, racist thoughts. It's playing out at a whole level of us, and we need to silence our minds to become more aware of what's, what's playing out in our bodies. Um, 
it's certainly about leaning into discomfort. You know, anything about confronting issues of race. Race is a hard, thorny problem in this society. We've been, you know, trying to, we've been, how can I say? In the last 50 some odd years, 60 some odd years, we've made some kind of good effort attempt to address it. We've, we've solved a few things, but, but still it's very much with us. You know, and it's very much with us because of the way that we all participate in it, you know, in, you know, unconsciously. Um, and so it's really about looking into how am I complicit in this, you know, and as, as a white person, how is my white privilege playing out, this sort of thing, you know, or, you know, for anyone, how, how am I supporting this, how am I, you know, um, or, or alternately, it could be for a personal color. How am I? How have I been co-opted by it? How am I, even though I'm a victim of it, still supporting it? You know this kind of thing. Ultimately, this work does cause us to question. It does raise questions of identity. You know, what does it mean to be white in America? What does it mean to be a person of color in America? What does it mean to be straight in America? You know, like all these questions. Um, so it very much has the potential to deeply unsettle our nature of identity. And really, it's, it's ultimately about unfolding very high the highest possibilities in us i mean you could say that the the goal as it were for equity or inclusion work were would be for me to be able to meet any person regardless of race color creed orientation all that to meet any person and give them the same level of respect the same level of consideration the same level of honoring of who they are um, and the funny thing is, I think we profoundly underestimate that. I think it's so easy for us to think up in our heads, well, I'm pretty close to that already, you know, and really underestimate how lofty a goal that is to really make every person feel truly welcome for who they are. Wow. That, uh, I don't think that's an easy thing at all. And I think, I, in my experience, that, that's a very humbling kind of goal to be walking toward. And again, just as, how can I say, for the person who thinks Buddhism is a philosophy, they're thinking Buddhism is just ideas they can rearrange in their head. But that's not Buddhism. If you're all you're doing is thinking about Buddhism, you're not Buddhist. And and race Menachem would say much in the same way. If I'm just thinking about anti-racist ideas, thinking about them and talking about them, I'm not really doing the anti-racist work. I'm not really doing it until I engage it as an everyday process and developing the bodily awareness around it. So I'm going to take a big bit of a jump here in the Dharma talk for a minute and 
start talking about medieval Christianity. And in the medieval Christian worldview, it was kind of taken for granted everyone's a sinner. You know, and this was certainly the church message, everyone is a sinner. And the church message was actually, I would say, well-balanced because it would say everyone is a sinner and we all have forgiveness available from God. All we have to do is humble ourselves and beg for forgiveness and ask for God's grace and then God's grace will flow into our lives. You know, and I would say that actually I think of as a healthy dynamic. I mean, there was a lot that was not healthy about the Middle Ages, but, but that part I would say is healthy. And, you know, in our modern world, I would say, you know, the, the truth, we are all sinners, the, the more modern way I would say it is, we're all kind of screwed up. Like, we all have our moments when we're really hard to handle. You know, not necessarily every day, but we all have those moments. Those moments when we're just completely intolerable, you know? And that's part of what it is to be human, you know? And, you know, in the medieval world, for someone to say, if someone seriously started to assert, I am not a sinner, like essentially that person would be saying, you know, I know that I am in touch with God's grace. You know, I have this kind of divine kind of knowledge. Um, I mean, that would be considered heresy. They would, they would burn that person at the stake if the person didn't recant that. Um, and even in a modern world, like we're we're awfully suspicious. Like it, it often raises a red flag if we hear somebody saying, you know, I have no issues. You know, I'm totally I'm totally resolved. I'm never a pain in the ass. You know, like you know, like what 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 cloud does that person think they're walk, working walking on? You know, and I think that that balance is important. We're all screwed up in some ways. And we're all completely lovable as we are. And really to hold both of those authentically, I think, is important. So fast forward from the Middle Ages to 2023. I think we live in a world in which the word racist is essentially a proxy word for sinner. You know, it's just, it carries the same level of condemnation, the same level of, um, you know, undesirability and moral, moral charge to it. And it, the position of the anti, of anti-racist work, uh, much like the position of the early church, we're all racists. We're all participating in some way in supporting racism. The, the ongoing effect of racism. Um, and for, you know, from this perspective, for someone to say, I'm not racist, you know, it, it's almost like they're putting themselves at some sort of superhuman plane, like human dynamics don't apply to this person. And so it, but obviously that's a very challenging worldview and we hear lots of people saying, oh, I'm not racist at all. Sometimes the most racist people are saying that, you know. 
So it's a, it's a very confusing time we live in. I'll also say, thinking about a yoga, how do we communicate a yoga? How do we advocate for a yoga? Let's take meditation, for example. It is, I take it as self-evident that, say, if the vast majority of Americans had a daily meditation practice, this country would be in a much, much better shape. Like, I think, I think all kinds of social, political, economic ills would be solved if we could come at it from that angle, you know? And so... But if I want people, if I think it's a good idea for more people to meditate, like, um, there, there'd be something jarring or paradoxical, like if I'm walking through Union Square with a megaphone, everyone should be meditating, you know, like, like it, that's very anti-Buddhist, like, you know, clearly if what I want is more meditation, I shouldn't be making more noise in the world about it, you know, so clearly that's not the way to spread the the message and and even worse would be like and this this again is totally against buddhism but but spreading it with a kind of judgmental air you know good people meditate bad people don't meditate you know like something like that would be completely anti-buddhist or perhaps even more anti-buddhist you know if someone said you know i tried meditation and it didn't work for me for someone to respond i'm offended by that you know like like that that is the antithesis of Buddhism, like you know, holding up, you know, I'm offended by that, you know, so all those I would call um spectacularly unskillful ways to try and advocate for the spread of a yoga. We'll now consider anti-racist work and how often when when people of anti-racist sentiments encounter something they perceive as racist, they label it with judgment. They, they may say, I'm offended, you know. Um, there's a thought that having rallies and going out shouting in the streets and all that is going to change things. Um... And I think we're in an age where we're certainly at an age in which, if you consider all Americans, all Americans are somewhere on a spectrum about how open or not open they are to messages of anti-racism and inclusion. And Berkeley people are way over on the fans of inclusion side, typically. Um, But I think a lot of the people who are far from this conversation who are not very comfortable with the idea, these ideas, they get hit with lots of judgment, lots of, lots of people being offended, lots of, you know, cancel culture and all this. And it generates this tremendous backlash in this country, you know, the anti-woke sentiments, all this. Um, I think framing anti-racist work as a yoga, first of all, highlights how hard this is, how challenging it is, you know, 
I mean, for someone to take up this work, it's as serious as, you know, an, analogously to taking up a daily meditation practice. You know, this is something hard. This is a, a major undertaking. And I'd say to take what, what would, you know, Buddhist skillful means look like. Well, I'd say one of the simplest yet most profound questions in life is simply, do you want to be right or happy? And it's an incredibly profound question stated very simply. Um, I think there are a large number of people who are locked into all kinds of unhappy situations Precisely because they're clinging to being right and don't want to let go, you know. And it, it's a very useful, it's a very useful exercise for all of us, you know. Where am I clinging to being right in a way that's preventing me from being happy? You know. And this is very much in line with Buddhism. Buddhism doesn't care that much about right or wrong. It's not, not, it's not really concerned with, you know, arguing for the truth of this and you have to believe this, you know. It's not, it's not belief-based in the same way that Western religions are belief-based. Um, it's much more concerned with happiness. And so it would be much more a Buddhist way to advocate for meditation. You'd be happier if you meditated, you know. You could heal your trauma if you meditated, you know. Incidentally, there's a tremendous amount of psychological research behind these statements at this point. Um, you would be more in touch with yourself. You will, you'll have more fulfilling, you know, you'll be at peace with yourself and have more fulfilling relationships if you meditate. You know, in other words, it's all about how this brings how this will reduce suffering and bring healing into your life. You know, and I really think the anti-racist message would be most effectively spread in an analogous way. You know, why is racism wrong? Well, not because it's a moral judgment of right and wrong or anything. Racism is wrong because it hurts people, because it's painful, you know? Insofar as I am participating in racism in any way, I'm contributing to people being hurt in some way, you know. And I'm also, because of that, I'm also disconnected from myself. You know, as long as there's any part of the world that I'm hurting, either consciously or unconsciously, I'm not fully connected to myself. I'm not fully able to love myself unless I can fully love everyone around me, you know. I don't, I can't step into my own happiness unless I'm deep, deeply and fully and richly committed to the happiness of each person I encounter, you know. And so as hard as this work is, it is ultimately about, uh, it's ultimately about a, an emotional kind of fulfillment, um, and I think really that is a much more important message to be spreading about the, about the nature of anti-racist work.
So at this point, I'll share the quote sheet. One nice thing about Zoom, I'll no longer have to handle physical quote sheets. And so there's a long quote on the front from Race Mannequin. At the top, I put the, as a reminder, the, the Vimbas, the, the six intelligences of the body. So you, you have that. Um, but there's this long quote that he has, and this is about doing it, about anti-racist practice. This is all about people getting to realize that in that suffering's edge. So what I say is that when you're walking toward the fire, when you're walking toward, I kind of look at it in my mind's eye, I kind of see it as a burning sun. And as you walk toward the sun, the closer you walk toward the sun, you sweat more, right? You begin to question, am I going in the right direction? This is getting awfully hot, right? The more you start to stink, the more you start to think about things that you thought you had dealt with, the more boredom starts to set in, the more questioning, the more physical pain you start to experience, the more you walk toward the sun. The more that begins to happen simply because you take one step and then another. And one of the things that happens is you begin to learn what, what you thought your limitations were and what they actually are, right? And as you move closer to that thing, what happens is the heat starts to bring these things up and it forces you to start to get strong. It forces you to develop, forces you to develop, to thicken your skin. At the same time you develop a fortified mind and your skin begins to thicken, it also forces you to balance that with a flexible heart, right? And as you walk closer, the other thing it does is it burns away things like inadequacy. It burns in humility. It burns away self-doubt. Because the closer you get toward that sun, the more of yourself begins to be revealed and that begins to burn away. And this is so important for white people as it relates to race, right? As it relates to race, the burning fire for white people is to walk toward race, toward creating a cultural container both communally and individually, so more of their self can be burned away. Then if we stop walking to the fire, the burning will stop. I won't sweat as much if I stop. You're absolutely right. You will feel better. You will actually get back all the things that were being taken from you because you were speaking up, because you were doing things differently, because you're speaking a different language, because you're developing a different culture. All that stuff, all that cascading away from you will begin to stop. And what will happen is all the doubt and all the pieces, all the inadequacies, now all the stuff that was being burned away now congeals, right? And if you want to take more pain away, all you got to do is take a step backwards. And now all of a sudden you're taking a step backwards and now the heat is not so intense. You can take another step backwards, it's even less intense, Right? And this is the difference between clean pain and dirty pain. Now that you take a step backwards, you also know you've experienced the dirtiness of it. And you understand what dirty feels like, right? You understand, and nothing's going wrong, 
Now you just have to decide that the gifts you were supposed to bring into the world, you're now going to die with, and you're all right with it. You're all right with the gifts that you were supposed to bring into the world to change things. You're all, all right now dying with those gifts. Those gifts dying around you, looking at you as you die at 97, right? So that's Reese Momenikin. He's, he's pretty intense. Some other quotes from William Feather. If we do not discipline ourselves, the world will do it for us. Mother Teresa said, if we have no peace, it is because we have forgotten that we belong to each other. Nelson Mandela said, our human compassion binds us one to the other not in pity or patronizingly, but as human beings who have learned to turn our common suffering into hope for the future. Dr. King said quite simply, the time is always right to do what is right. Jose Eduardo dos Santos said, no magic wand can resolve our problems. The solution rests with our work and discipline. Julia Alvarez says, each of us will have to make the choices that allow us to be the largest version of ourselves. Daniel Goldman says, true compassion means not only feeling another's pain, but also being moved to help relieve it. Sharon Salzberg says, we need the compassion and courage to change the conditions that support our suffering. These conditions are things like ignorance, bitterness, negligence, clinging, and holding on. Steve Goodyear said, get yourself grounded and you can navigate even the stormiest roads in peace. Dr. Ibram Kendi said, in the end, hating white people becomes hating black people. In the end, hating black people becomes hating white people. Hating any part of the world is hating ourselves also. Mohadesa Najumi said, You are not always right. It's not always about being right. The best thing you can offer others is understanding. Being an active, lis- being an active listener is about more than listening. It's about reciprocating and being receptive to someone else. Everyone has woes. No one is safe from pain. However, we all suffer in different ways. So learn to adapt to each person. Know your audience and reserve yourself for people who have earned the depths of you. Hung Curley said, A true healer is the one who heals himself first so that others can benefit from his own healing. Devin McDermott said, Trauma stays with us for a long time, often our whole lives. But here's here's the really tricky part. Trauma lives in the nonverbal parts of the brain. That means traumatized people often don't have words to remember or explain their trauma. Trauma reactions can sneak up on someone without warning, and they might have a really hard time explaining what's happening to them. And I would say a a lot of our racism is buried with our trauma. 
and plays out and needs to be healed the same way trauma needs to be healed. Charles Eisenstein said, true discipline is just self-remembering. No forcing or fighting is necessary. And Race Momenikin said, self-discipline is self-love. Show me a person who is not disciplined, and I will show you a person who doesn't love themselves.